on 98FM and online. This is Phoenix FM. can't believe it. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Welcome to another edition of... Happiness to be found, even in the darkest of times. That system probably contains a new data encryption algorithm. You'll never get in there. Welcome to another edition of the Happiness Algorithm with myself, James Roast. It's the show that talks all things mental health, emotional well-being, and what we can do to make us that little bit happier. Uh, now, I hope you've had a good week. Um, I've not. I've had a pretty good week this week, actually. Uh, feel rested and replenished, and ready to kick off uh, another episode of the Happiness Algorithm. Um, and I'm joined by a fantastic guest today. Uh, she is an author, a public speaker, and a campaigner for mental health. What led her to this path was a battle she fought over four years ago, a dark secret she managed to keep hidden from her friends and family. But this all came to an abrupt halt when on the 17th of November 2007, her world changed forever. She was admitted to a mental health hospital. Her skin was yellowing, her heart was failing, she was barely recognisable. Forced to leave her family and friends, the hospital became her home. Over the next year, uh, at her lowest ebb, she faced the biggest challenge of her life. She had to find the courage to beat anorexia. Since being discharged, she has fought to stay well. She now wants to use her experiences of mental health to champion the rights of others, inspire them to get well, and help break the stigma of mental illness. Her book titled Stand Tall Little Girl shares a harrowing yet truly inspiring journey. Through her letters and her diary entries, her story tells us how she fought from rock bottom to beat the friend that had controlled her and nearly destroyed her life. The story of her recovery will inspire so, so many. Please welcome to the show, Hope Virgo. Hope, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm I'm, uh, I'm delighted to have you on. I, I think that this is a topic and a subject that is quite close to my heart and to have yourself come on and uh and, and to share a conversation with you about this and your journey um I, I'm I'm extremely excited and honored uh, to have you on the show thanks uh Hope tell you know for, for those that are not aware of your journey um share a little bit about who you are and uh and 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 what that path has been like um so I am a mental health campaigner um so work um kind of everywhere actually to try and challenge stigma around mental health to try and get people to have an understanding about recovery but also to try and break a lot of the stereotypes that often come with uh eating disorders particularly around issues around weight 
um, and BMI and appearance. Um, but I guess kind of going back, I don't know what, I'm trying to now do the maths, I'm so bad at maths, 15 years or so, um, I developed anorexia when I was about 12, 13 years old. And the anorexia was like having this best friend with me the entire time. It gave me this real value and sense of purpose. And although at the time I didn't realise it was controlling me, um, looking back, it definitely controlled me from the moment I got up in the morning to the moment I went to bed. It dictated what I was eating, what I should drink, how much exercise I should do. And every time I did what it wanted me to do, I just felt absolutely amazing about everything going on. I felt amazing about life. I felt invincible. I felt like I could just take on take on the world in every possible way. And the other thing it really did for me was it just helped to numb any kind of emotion I was feeling. So growing up, I had struggled quite a bit with my emotions, kind of struggled to process things, struggled to talk, um, felt quite lonely a lot of the time. And the anorexia just helped to get rid of that emotion, those emotions that I didn't want to feel. And it was, um, it was amazing. And actually, it was really interesting, because I've been doing a lot of work um, on myself over the last year in my therapy, and kind of realized that actually the anorexia was weirdly something that kept me alive during that kind of first part of developing it because it kept me going it kept me functioning and it kept me yeah kind of kept me just moving further forward um but obviously back then like I didn't realize how dangerous what I was doing was and instead of reaching out for that support and telling someone that I was struggling I became so engrossed in the anorexia and let it yeah let it take that control away it's so sorry for the long pause hope it's um it's extremely refreshing to hear you talk in the way you do because for a long time now for me um i've felt that we have this difficult relationship with eating disorders in the sense from a clinical perspective that they are um oh, okay so i'm struggling to find words that that, that can put it in the fairest possible way that they are the enemy almost but you know even from from the top of the show and the introduction there and and pulling um and i purposely pulled apart um from from your website that friend and as you talk about the anorexia there it kept you alive i think for many this would this would sound almost bonkers like this is you know as you say because it's it for most people see the physical effects of um eating disorders I've always felt that they're, a, a, you know, a cognitive disorder, a disorder of the mind. And actually, they become, in part, as you say, almost like a faithful servant in those periods of crisis when we are struggling for emotions. Um, t- tell me more about that or tell the listeners more about what that feels like and that sense of control it gives um, in that period of your life. Um. So, yeah, no, it, yeah, that sense of control, I guess it you start controlling everything around you. So you control calories, food, exercise, what you drink, and you become so fixated on the numbers that you feel like you're then in control of everything. Um, and for me growing up, like I'd really struggled, I'd really struggled to feel in control. I'd really struggled because I grew up in a family where it was quite dysfunctional a lot of the time and trying to kind of fix all of these family relationships and other people's emotions and to try and make sure that everyone else was okay all the time. And because I couldn't do that, because I couldn't fix everyone else, I had to take, try and take back control in other ways. Um, the other thing with the control for me was I was abused um, sexually for about eight, nine months 
And that's when the anorexia kicked in and started. And again, it was that control that the anorexia gave me. So thinking about calories and numbers and everything like that took me out of the reality of what was happening and took me away from kind of those everyday thinking around the abuse and my family situations. Um, and I think it's so true, isn't it? As like thinking back to kind of what you were saying about kind of like the clinical aspects and things like that. And I think something for me, particularly in those early days, is we still do think about eating disorders as a physical illness and we judge the severity so much on weight. And so when you first start to develop an eating disorder, you don't always realise actually the mental state that you're in as a person. You don't realise that it is a mental illness. And the other thing as well is you're constantly complimented on your physical appearance. So when you have an eating disorder, particularly with anorexia, you start to lose the weight and people start to compliment you on that. So then you get, again, that kind of added satisfaction off those compliments. And you then think that if you keep shrinking yourself, not only is it giving you this control, but actually it's making you feel better as a person and people are starting to notice that. Um, and by no means am I kind of saying that anorexia is around attention seeking or trying to change your body or because or so much to do with body image. It's so much more complicated than that. But actually, it does add that other layer to it as well, which I think, again, is something that's often ignored. Yeah, if we may, let's let's jump to sort of I, I don't want to leave some of this stuff behind and we, we certainly will revisit it during the show. But I think it's it's quite nice to touch on the, the dump the scales campaign um, that, that you're pioneering um, with regards to how we measure and the metric that we apply to uh, recovery and eating disorders and and um, and how that number on the scales represents wellness, if you, if, if you will. Um, tell us a little bit more about the campaign, what it stands for and what it's looking to achieve. Um, yeah, no, definitely. So I launched the Dump the Scales campaign about a year and a half ago now. Um, and the reason I launched it is because back in 2016, I relapsed. So um, kind of for about four or five months, I was really, really struggling with food again. And I ended up going to the hospital, um, the eating disorder service, to try and get a diagnosis, to try and get support and treatment. But because I wasn't underweight, I wasn't actually able to access any kind of treatment on the NHS. And I left this appointment and just felt like such a fake anorexic person. I felt like I was attention seeking. I felt completely misunderstood and just not heard in the whole thing. And it was so frustrating because all I wanted was like eight or nine sessions of like talking therapy just to kind of have a bit of a chat with someone to try and process my emotions in a more healthy way and to just really feel like someone was really listening to me and taking me seriously but because I couldn't do that um through the NHS I had like this four-week period <clears throat> where things just got really really challenging for me I felt really suicidal a lot of the time I cried a lot of the time I was kind of obsessively working out um, and I ended up actually after that four week period going back to my GP and being put, put on antidepressants. And I think like we could probably have a whole other conversation about antidepressants and the stigma that's still very wrapped <laughs> yeah. up in that. But actually for me, going on antidepressants was a really scary thing to do. Um, I was worried about my weight changing. I was worried about the impact it might have on me. I was worried what other people would think. But over the next kind of year and a half, I made this massive commitment to get myself back to a better space. And I think the antidepressants, like it really, really helped me do that, just kind of gave me a bit more energy, kind of helped me clear my head a little bit. 
Um, but when I came through my relapse, I started talking very openly about what I'd been through. Um, my book came out and people were kind of seeing that actually the whole journey around recovery. And I just met so many people, pretty much every single talk that I would deliver, whether it was to a corporate or to a school or within the NHS, someone would always, at least one person would always come up at the end of the talk and say to me, like that happened to me, like that happened to me. I got turned away from services. I'm trying to access support now. I can't access that support because I'm not underweight. And I realized that actually this wasn't something that just affected me but it is something that affects so many people on like a day-to-day basis. People are constantly being turned away from services for not being underweight. And I was actually in one one talk um, at the NSPCC and someone in the audience asked me what I was gonna do about it. And I was a bit like, oh, I, I don't know. And there in that talk, I was like, I'm gonna campaign on it, I'm gonna change it. Um, so like a week later, I launched the petition um and yeah it kind of just went from there really so in short the dump the scales campaign is all around making sure that people with eating disorders can get access and support for treatment regardless of what their bmi is and this is for both children's and adult services um the petition's got over a hundred thousand signatures um it's been picked up kind of all over national press but also i've taken it to downing street and got a lot of like MP and ministerial support but I think for me like what I've realized over lockdown is that lockdown has just created this whole perfect storm for people with eating disorders we've got people stockpiling we've got people struggling with over exercise we've got this constant pressure on social media to be dieting left right and center and actually it's a really unhealthy place so there are currently so many people who really want to get better but can't because there's just not that support in place um and I think the other thing with the campaign as well is just trying to change, trying to change like that general kind of societal view, because I guarantee people listening today, like not in a patronizing way at all. But when we think of eating disorders, we so often think of a white teenage girl who looks like a skeleton. But actually eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. And a lot of people who struggle with food are actually not severely underweight. And it means that there'll be so many people who are kind of just functioning, not that happy, but just kind of getting through that day to day. Um, And then the other thing just to add on the campaign, which is something that I'm have been doing quite a bit of research around over the last couple of months is actually black people also really struggle to get a diagnosis because their BMI is a little bit higher than a white person's BMI. So actually, when they go to the doctor and they present with an eating disorder, quite often the doctor will tell them that they're overweight or they need to exercise or that they're not actually like underweight enough so just trying to change that whole area of stigma as well I think it's incredible what you're doing hope and um and and the traction that it's gained and the the noise that it's making um is 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 incredible and I and I do hope and I do believe that actually it will bring about change um and I and I I have to agree you're right that there is this stereotypical view of what an eating disorder looks like and it immediately lends itself to as you say white teenage girl skeletal in frame um and and goes to that end of um uh the spectrum of anorexia but we know that there's such a broad range of 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 eating disorders and people struggling with how they regulate and manage their emotions and and I want to if I may point people towards your uh, social media platforms and um, a video that you recently published with individuals that have shared their story um, 
being unable to access services because I think it really it, it hit home when you can see the um, uh, the the faces behind the voices as well and and see their journey. You can see the tragedy and the the level of um pain really and and the disappointment i felt that that so many are unable to access services and going back to a point you made around you know uh, in 2016 when you experienced the relapse as well that you asked for help and was unable to to access that and you're right yes we could have a whole entire show on on antidepressants i think what the disappointment disappointing part for me is the fact that you'd asked even, you know, say eight, 10, 12 sessions of talking therapy just to enable you to work through that. But the first port, not first port of call, no disrespect to the GPs and that, how, you know, but um, it was easier to obtain medication than it was to go for your initial request of a talking therapy. And I think that is the really frustrating, I think for me, that was probably the most frustrating thing. And like definitely like you like we're not we're not here to slam the NHS because what the NHS NHS does is absolutely amazing and I yeah, wouldn't yeah. be here if it wasn't for the NHS treatment that I had when I was 17 years old but actually I think the problem is is that there's this there's this huge cultural misunderstanding across the NHS around eating disorders and a lot of GPs don't have the understanding and it's not their fault they only get two hours of GP um, eating disorder training throughout the whole of their medical degree and actually that is just not enough and I think again like it's 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 really difficult because what it does is it doesn't doesn't tackle the root issue of the problem so I know why I have an eating disorder I know pretty much what's caused it and things like that I know what my triggers are I know what my coping mechanisms are everything like that but the only reason I know that is because of the extensive therapy that I've had and actually for me by giving me antidepressants it was just putting a plaster on of something that needed to be tackled and a wound that at some point was going to open up and had to be explored really openly and with a therapist or in whatever way someone might want to do that but I think for me that was my yeah that was my biggest frustration and I think as well with I think with frontline staff as well like it is really challenging for them to know always what they should and shouldn't be saying but a huge part of the campaign particularly at the moment is around just empowering them to feel GPs and other frontline staff to feel confident in saying something so if you have an eating disorder and you go to the GP like people know that services are stretched we know there's funding issues we know that's not the fault of the NHS but there's like again like a huge other kind of probably a whole other session that we could talk about funding and things like that but Mm. actually it's it's about giving the GP like a few words to say to that person it's about treating the individual as an adult and being honest with them telling someone there is funding issues there's issues around services we would love to help you if we could but what we're going to do instead is we're going to validate you we're going to make you understand that we are taking your illness seriously this is what we're going to do instead this is where you can go for that interim support come back in three weeks check in with us and I think that is where we want to see change yeah so it's seeing that individual isn't it and like you say it's uh you said they're treating somebody as an adult and I couldn't you know, for me, that's such an important and powerful statement that, you know, when any of us, any of us are in crisis, we, we're off, you know, we're in a state of fragility and vulnerability. And, and that shares itself with that sort of child part of our brain. And I think that it's important for any, I was going to say any care provider, but anyone in general, um, 
that that when that individual is seeking support that we do treat them as an adult that there is adult to adult contact that there is a uh, an equilibrium a balance in that relationship you know a medical or professional relationship or a friend relationship that there is balance and we see the individual we recognize they're in crisis but we don't we don't sort of necessarily talk down to them as you say that that you know that they've done something wrong that this is that they're broken and they're not they're not dealing with things correctly in some way. I think that's a really crucial um, part of holding and containing that individual uh, during that period of crisis. Um, okay, so I well, there's so many questions, <laughs> so many questions, so many different directions I want to go in. Um, so, in terms of um, Let's look at, if we may, the sort of relapse element of, of 2016 and what that looked like uh, for people to understand and, and for people that are maybe struggling. What was it that you was experiencing um, a, away from the sort of the, the physical symptoms as well? You touched on it uh, loosely before about increasing exercising and, and, and that. Yeah, no, definitely. So in 2016, um, my grandma passed away. And she had dementia um, for probably about five or six years before she eventually uh, went. And I <clears throat> went to see her actually the Friday before and had this really, really bad visit with her. Um, I wasn't really in the mood to be there that day, if I'm honest. Um, I didn't really have the patience. I had plans that evening back in London. And it was just one of those things that I, I kind of did because I felt like I had to do it. Um, anyway, I've had this terrible time with her. And... I think I must have stayed in the care home for about an hour um, and then eventually was like to my mum, can we go back to the station? Like, can you drop me back and I'll go back to London and you can come back and sit with her if you want to. And I got on the train back to London and just was kind of hit with this insane feeling of guilt. I felt like I'd let my mum down. I'd let my grandma down. And I was just so frustrated at myself. And it was, it was the whole thing just annoyed me because I'm normally so good in these situations and for some reason, I just couldn't deal with the care home. I think she'd only been in for probably about three days and she'd got a lot worse in that three day period. And I'd been with her the Friday before in her home. And she just like I convinced myself that she looked completely different in those different kind of scenarios and those different bedrooms. And anyway, by the time I got back to London, I kind of convinced myself that it was going to be fine. that I was going to be back the following Friday. And I had this whole visit planned out in my head. I was going to take her for this walk around the grounds. We were going to kind of read the poetry that she used to love. And we'd got her these jumpers that week before. So I was going to sew her label into the jumpers. Um, but the following Wednesday, my mum called me. And I went straight on the train to Oxford to tr see her. But I didn't get there in time to have that final visit. And I just, I just couldn't cope with it, if I'm honest. I tried so hard to be really strong for everyone around me but was really, really struggling with it. And I felt like the easiest thing to do on that Wednesday afternoon was to just put on this kind of pretend face, be okay with everything. And I went into like full on, like matter of fact, like kind of functional mode, not really trying to deal with things. Went straight back to work, kind of threw myself into my job, but that wasn't really working. And that's the really frustrating thing with eating disorders is when you're feeling really rubbish and out of control with things, when you're faced with so much uncertainty and so many of those emotions that you don't want to feel, that voice starts to come back. 
And for me, it was over a kind of like a couple of weeks, it was just there nagging me. And it told me if I skipped lunch, then I'd feel much better. If I did more exercise, I'd feel much better. And I just remember at first, like it really worked. And I think that is the really scary thing with eating disorders is they do give you this short term value and this short term validation. And, and I loved it. I loved what it gave me. I loved how it made me feel in the morning. And like, it was ridiculous. And I was really frustrated at myself because I knew what was happening. And I remember kind of thinking about it quite a bit randomly in the day. I'd be like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? And I'd always say to myself, it's okay. I'm just going to do this for like a couple of months. And then when I'm beginning to feel better about my grandma, then I can go back to kind of being full on recovery mode. But obviously, like you can't get up one morning and decide you want to be anorexic. And like three weeks later, decide you don't want to be anymore. And after kind of a couple of months, I was really like just not feeling great about it. Kind of was not really engaged in any social activities, had kind of forgotten about birthdays and family events and was quite becoming quite inward focused, actually, kind of just kind of getting my head down every day, but was also crying a lot of the time. It was it was just felt really, really messy. Um, So, yeah, as I said, I ended up then referring myself to services, but wasn't able to get that support. And I think for me, like after I went on the medication and kind of came through, I guess, the first few weeks of being on medication, because at first it was really, really difficult. It was then that I realised that actually there were things that I could do that I could actually go back to. And it was things like having meal plans in place. It was making sure that I had a text from like people to be like, have you eaten today? Don't do too much exercise. And all of this kind of stuff that would just help alleviate some of that guilt that I was feeling around food and exercise and my emotions. Um, but I think I think that's what's... And I was, actually, it's really interesting because someone contacted me recently about this and was like, how did you get through your relapse when you didn't get support? And obviously, like I had those various mechanisms in place and the things that worked for me. But it's really frustrating, I think, for a lot of people who get turned away from services or they never go into treatment. So they spend their whole life functioning and then they take a bit of a backward step because I've had I had those skills and those coping mechanisms put in place for me and learned so much when I was first hospitalized when I was 17. So I knew what to do and where to go back to. But a lot of people don't have that. So I think for those people, again, it's it's really challenging. And I think the other thing as well, just to kind of flag, is that whole kind of thing around recovery. Like we put so much pressure on ourselves to be in this kind of ongoing kind of straight line recovery where every day is one step better than the day before. And week by week, you're kind of improving massively. But actually the reality of recovery is it is so unbelievably messy. And we cannot feel guilty about that. We need to try and move away from, yeah, making ourselves feel bad that we're relapsing or that we're having a few backward days, or even that we're just on this kind of like level plateau in our recovery. Because actually relapsing isn't a sign of weakness, but for some of us, it's just something that we go through. And what I do believe is actually when you've come through a relapse, you come back even stronger than you were um, before you went into it as well. And you learn new coping mechanisms, new ways of dealing with things. Um, And I think as well, like, and I promise this is the final thing before I let you speak. Um, no, 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 please. I just think like, for me, like I'd put so much pressure on myself to kind of get to like this 10 year marker for some reason. I was like, if I get to 10 years, then I'll be fine. 
and I think quite often like that's not how it works like that's not the real world like every single person all over the world has mental health and yes we work our way up and down that spectrum but actually it's it's okay to have a bad mental health day it's okay to feel really rubbish one day you're not necessarily relapsing when that happens but it's so difficult I think for people out there because there is these I guess like these pressures on being fully recovered and also these pressures yeah these pressures to get to that point much quicker than you maybe can and that then stops other people reaching out for that support hope there are so many things you said there that um i'm, I'm, I'm frantically scribbling down because i think that um well i suppose the first question I, I wanted to ask and it makes me wonder about that word recovery and I, the, the the question i wanted to sort of pose was do we ever really recover now I'm going to add a little bit more to that, um, so it doesn't become too too provocative that question. But um, f- okay, so for me, whether it be an eating disorder, um, whether it be uh, say use of alcohol or drug use or excessive exercise, or um, and this is not me diluting or clumping all of these um, uh, these these presenting symptoms together, but these become a weapon of choice in a world where it is let's go pre-lockdown um but i'm going to come on to lockdown in a minute but if we go pre-lockdown and covid um we were processing five times more information um during that period than we were 30 years ago and so our brain was under an immense amount of pressure and stress you touched on it earlier about the the the, the hiats and social media and work and technology we've advanced technologically further than we ever have been before and we're under more stress than we've ever been before and we're losing that art of sort of being in the moment so for me a lot of our presenting um symptoms that that fall under that banner of of mental health as it were are often a clear representation of the the challenges that we face and that weapon of choice that we choose perhaps it comes down to a genetic predisposition whether it's alcohol or or food or exercise or whatever it may be and so it makes me wonder whether actually do we ever recover um because if we're if we're existing one guarantee of in life is that there's always going to be crisis and when we, I agree with you that relapses is, is uh, you know, or, or setbacks are quite important because they they draw our attention back to what we're up against. And and for me, when it when we're looking at sort of disordered eating or, or, or an eating disorder and restrictive food or excessive exercise, is our body's way. Well, you know, other you know listeners of the show have heard me say it before that behaviour is always a line of communication, particularly in children, and we sort of lose sight of that in adults. But if if we're beginning to adjust our behaviours, it can often be a telltale sign that emotionally we're not perhaps addressing something. Um, and so, rather long windedly, I suppose I'm posing that question of: Do we actually ever really recover? Um, do you know, it's such an interesting question. Um. And something that I've, yeah, thought so much about, um, and actually did like a week's focus on my Instagram around recovery and whether it is something that you, that you, yeah, that full recovery is possible, like achievable. Um, and I, it's, yeah, I think for some people it is. Um, and I have uh, a friend actually, um, who 
she's called Verity and she is in full recovery. So she would say she is 100% recovered. And when I look at her and when I spend time with her and when I and when I say, look, I don't mean a weight aspect. I mean, actually like that glow in her face and her eyes and her smile um, and how she is like, actually, I, I, I really believe that she is fully recovered. But I think for a lot of people, they don't fully recover. And I, I also think that's OK. I think that a lot of people and the majority of people will go through life in an ongoing state of recovery. And interestingly, actually, someone that I spoke to recently was talking actually about how they don't like the word recovery, but they like the word healing because mm, you mm. can be in this state of recovery, but you're healing different wounds along the way. And I would definitely say that for myself, actually. So when I left hospital when I was 18, um, I was in a very good place in my recovery. Um, and then last year, I opened up a lot of old wounds around the abuse, went back to therapy and I had to heal in different ways and get to a, yeah, get to a different stage in my recovery whilst, yeah, healing other wounds and kind of letting them all out. And I, I think that's okay. Um, so, yeah, I think for most people it is an ongoing state, but it's about changing those, changing those uh, triggers and those coping mechanisms. So, for example, in the, I want to say in the old days, it's probably like a couple of years ago when I maybe had some bad news or something happened, my tendency and my behavior to cope with that would be to restrict or to exercise too much. Um, and, but now when that happens, I know not to restrict and I know not to punish myself with exercise. And instead I will journal or I will talk to someone or I'll ring my therapist. And I think that's partly what it is in recovery, isn't it? It's like, it's an ongoing state for all of us but we have to find new coping mechanisms within that. And that doesn't mean that that thinking is ever 100% going to go away, but it definitely gets less and less. And for me, over the last couple of years, that eating disorder kind of thinking in my head does get less and less and less. And yes, some days it can still be really bad, but actually the more we challenge it and the more we push it, um, I think it does get easier. And the other thing I guess on that is, particularly with eating disorders, because you're having to reintroduce food, it again can be quite complicated. And because in effect, you're trying to eat a normal diet, but you're going within that, you're going against a lot of what society is telling us. And I think that again, adds that other complicated factor that actually social media, the telly, everything like that has created this society where we have normalized disordered eating. And it means that when you're in recovery from an eating disorder, you're going against all of that. Yeah, all of that aspect of it, if that makes sense. Um, so I think, again, that does make it harder. Um, and then the other thing on that, actually, is something that I've been doing for about three years now. So I think for people with eating disorders, quite often you get to a state in your recovery where you kind of plateau. And obviously, like I'm speaking very generically here and some people won't hit that plateau. But I do think a fair few do just from the work that I've done and the people that I talk to. And I think when you hit that plateau, sometimes it's about the individual taking that ownership and actually kind of pushing themselves to get, yeah, to kind of get through that plateau. So for me, about three years ago, I realized I was like this functioning anorexic person. So I was um, kind of at my set point within my weight I ate and drank and things like that, but I was still very limited in what I was doing. So I only went to certain restaurants. I drank the same amount of alcohol each week. I did the same amount of exercise. And whilst I was kind of fine with it all, I realized that actually 
how I was living my life was still not kind of in that, I guess, not pushing myself to get to that full state of recovery. So I committed to challenging myself with food every single day. And what that for me is things like when I'm in the queue in Sainsbury's, if I see something in like the special offer section, you know, they have those massive baskets and I'm like, oh, I quite fancy that. That voice in my head will say, no, you don't need that. Don't get that. Like it's a waste, whatever. Might be unhealthy, might have too much sugar in it. And then I'm always like, actually, no, I want it. So I'm going to get it. Um, Or it might be things like letting someone else cook me dinner um, or going to restaurants last minute. And I think a huge part of recovery for everyone is actually pushing ourselves to get to that better space and to kind of, I guess, flexing kind of like that mental muscle to actually kind of build up that confidence as well within that. Yeah, it, and as you say, the, the, the recovery is so messy because it's it's so difficult to measure. Mm. You know, there's that global, uh, as you say, it's almost a, a personal journey journey of recovery to determine where we see ourselves um, as fully recovered. And I suppose that's the difficulty with the English language when you when you speak of Verity and and the glow that she um, that she has now. It makes me think about you know what you said earlier around understanding self and root cause and recognizing changes in behaviors and 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 being in tune with that that narrative that as you say when you're lining up at the supermarket and you know you you feel that urge to or oh, I really fancy that and it's going with that and not allowing uh, a, a sort of uh, not so much a negative voice but uh, a, a contradicting voice that says no you shouldn't have that as it were. And I suppose that's that voice that many that are struggling will experience and know and understand, but it's pushing against that. And that's an ongoing thing. Yeah. And I think that, I think that is so true, isn't it? And I think like you've like, obviously you've touched on it there as well, but I think for everyone, recovery does mean something completely different. And for me, recovery is about going out and enjoying my day without stressing about calories and my body image or going out for last minute meals or being able to get to the end of the day and then at 10 o'clock at night decide that I want to go and see a friend and have a takeaway or even just getting like takeaway chips on the way home from a night out or something. And I think for each of us, we have to, yeah, we have to work out what recovery is for us. And, and I think that's okay, definitely. But it is important within that, particularly with eating disorders, to always make sure that we've got to that particularly with anorexia we've got to that point in our weight where we are a healthy weight and we're a healthy weight for our bodies as well and do you think for individuals that are struggling um they can achieve that clarity on their uh, through self-discovery through through reflection um or do you feel that it's important that they do that therapeutically for a counselor therapist psychologist or or do you think it is achievable to uh to manage yourself um so I think it is um for some people uh I believe that yeah I believe that for some people if we get in there early enough and that's why for me like the whole focus on early intervention is so so important because if we get in there early then people's behaviors and their thinking isn't quite as ingrained in their head but I do also think that for some people they have to get that professional support. And for me, I was definitely one of those people that had to hit rock bottom before I, yeah, before I was able to get to that better space in my head, but also to be able to accept I had something the matter with me. And I think sometimes 
for some people you it is just so difficult to accept and with eating disorders particularly acceptance is key to then moving forward and yeah so I think yeah I guess yes and no I think some people yes that's totally doable and it's about finding out what works for you but I do think within that like if you cannot access that therapy or you cannot access that support depending on whether it's NHS treatment or whether you pay for professional therapy whatever it might be actually there are other ways to go around it and for me there's been other things that have massively helped my recovery from kind of following certain people on Instagram to doing a lot of journaling to looking at actually my own support network around me Um, and also I go to church so like that's a massive part of my recovery as well actually having faith within that Um, so I think there is various different channels that we can look at and explore but I always say like it's it's what works for that individual and it's what works for that person is the most important thing Mm. well said and it's having individuals like yourself you know on on various platforms and social social media uh, platforms sharing your story and what you've been through and allowing people to see that they're not going through this alone that this is this is not something that is uh that that is alien that is that is uh unusual that there are many people that are struggling and i think you know your voice adds so much weight and support to so many now true to form um and i and i did say off air <laughs> hope that I, I always am running late with with the tracks and the choices of music by the guests i think we must play your first song choice um and when we come back uh we will continue our conversation and uh, around sort of recovery and anorexia and everything that you've been through uh this is the happiness algorithm with me james roast i'm joined my very special guest today is hope virgo and this is her first song choice
Phoenix FM. Welcome back to the Happiness Algorithm with me, James Roast. Uh, I'm joined by Hope Virgo today. Um, and that was her first song choice. That was Kenny Chesney and Pink setting the world on fire. Um, lovely song there, Hope. Thanks. I like it too. I learned, um, I learned it. I actually don't know the words to it at all. Um, but that's a <laughs> funny story probably. Um, I started just thinking at this time last year, actually, when I was uh, driving around Malta. Uh, not Malta, Mallorca for the weekend, which was nice. nice. So it kind of has a lot of happy Yeah, well, you know, the music, uh, important part of the show, uh, because I think it's, you know, it's such an emotive medium for many of us. Um, and, you know, I get so much joy hearing the, the song choices that guests choose. Uh, many songs that I've not come across before, or variety of different tastes as well. I think it really adds so much texture and flavour to, to, to the story. So it is an important part. And a great song choice. Um, so, Hope, before we took that break, we spoke a lot about, um, you know, your journey, the anorexia, um, y- you know, how we work through recovery, what actually recovery means. Um, and a question that um, I've been wanting to ask you for a while um, is because I have my own, um, I suppose I have my own viewpoint on it. And I'm really interested to see what yours is, is can we ever, can we ever dislike our eating disorder? Oh, good question. So I think it's a bit of a love hate relationship. Um, so it's like having this best friend telling you what to do, how to feel. Um, and you get so much love out of it. But at the same time, it's like your worst enemy. So you have that positive part of it, but the negative part of telling you that you're a failure, that you should feel really guilty for having anything to eat, that you're a disgrace, that you're disgusting. And it is like this constant battle in your head. So I think for so long, a lot of people will love what the eating disorder gives them, but at the same time, kind of hate it subconsciously. But then you move into this place when you start your journey of recovery or you start to realise that something's not quite right. And that's when you start to hate it. And I know for me, like for the first probably three years, I absolutely loved everything about it. I love what it gave me. I love how it made me feel. I loved that control and the getting rid of emotions and things like that. But kind of three and a bit years, four years into um, my eating disorder, I went away with my school friends and we went away after our GCSEs and we had this kind of week of eating and drinking and going out. And for me, that was the first time that the eating disorder started being really, really nasty to me. And every time I had anything to eat or drink, it would make me feel so, so guilty that I just hated it. I hated all of those feelings of failure, the disgust. I hated how I looked. I hated, yeah, everything about it. And it was that after that weekend or like that week away that I realized that actually I couldn't really see my school friends that much because when I was with them, the eating disorder was so much worse and so loud and it wasn't worth seeing my friends and having a good time to then be left with all of these feelings of guilt afterwards. And yeah, for me, that was when the kind of, the, yeah, I guess when that crossover happened. But then over then the next year, I started to kind of like what it gave me again. And then the six months um, in the run up to going into hospital, that was when again, it just started being unbearable. And I remember just like the weeks and months before I went into hospital, I would kind of lie in bed in the evenings and I would reflect on my day. I'd reflect on the arguments that I'd had around food. And 
I would just lie there and be like, I just want this to stop. Like, I just want this voice in my head to stop. And it didn't stop. And every evening I would tell myself that tomorrow morning I'm just going to get up, that I'm just going to start eating, that something is just going to click. But it never did. And the next morning I'd get up, I'd look in the mirror, I'd weigh myself. And that voice in my head just would not let me start to eat. And if I did, then I again would get those feelings of guilt. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's a process. And I know that when you start recovery and when you start accepting that you need that support, that is when the voice will just get so insanely loud um, and just be so nasty. And the other time I think when it you absolutely hate it and when I absolutely hate it is after I've gone out with my friends for an evening and I've totally relaxed, totally switched off around food. And the next morning I'll get up <clears throat> and I have like a bit of a sinking feeling in my stomach. Um, I might like, I don't know, like put my hand on my stomach when I'm lying in bed and that voice will then just start being really, really nasty again. So then I hate it. Mm, yes, a love-hate relationship. I it, it makes me think about how, you know, when we talk about acceptance and the eating disorder, and um you know listening to you there it, it, you know there's a there's a it be it ta- it embodies something you know it becomes that as we've said throughout the show there's it's a, almost a faithful friend a servant it's there in periods of crisis it's that love hate relationship so it embodies a a sense of identity for us to embrace that or accept that do we have to acknowledge that it is a part of self. Um, yeah, I think I think you do have to accept it at the start. And something that helped me do that when I was in hospital was to write letters to the eating disorder. So writing a letter telling it how much I hated it, and then another letter telling it how much I loved it. And I think when you accept it, you have to realise that there will be really good moments with it where you hate it still and you find a way to move on from it but also really bad moments where it will make you feel really really guilty and like a failure um but I think that acceptance I think acceptance is key within recovery because then it helps you to move further forward within that um but that's probably one of the hardest things about an eating disorder is that acceptance I like that um the letter of why you like it and the letter why you hate it as well was that something that you was encouraged to do or is that something that you you took upon yourself um no so we were encouraged to do it um but it's something now that I recommend to like everyone um and it was it was really interesting because you throughout your time in recovery and for me being obviously like throughout my hospital treatment um at the start I couldn't understand why it was so why I should hate it so the letter telling it how much I loved it was amazing. And the other one was like just more kind of factual, was more like, yeah, like I'm in hospital because of you, like I'm not at school. Um, but I didn't really believe any of that stuff. And then towards the end of it, you actually kind of, re- yeah, I guess you realise so much more actually how much you hate it and how much you don't want it to be part of your life. And for me, I think that's the really, like it's just such an important factor to realise that actually the eating disorder makes us feel totally invincible and it makes us think that we can take on the world that we can do what we want to do but at some point whilst you can function for such a long time with an eating disorder there is a point you have to tackle that thing 
And for me, obviously, it took hitting rock bottom to realise that I had an issue and that I needed support. For other people, you might not need to hit that rock bottom. But it's it's everyone's unique journey. And it's, yeah, I guess it's what works for them. Um, but yeah, I would massively recommend, like, if anyone is listening to this who's had an eating disorder or feels like their eating disorder is coming back and particularly like as lockdown eases like you might be struggling with your own things related to food or exercise or dieting and actually if that is you I would really encourage you to just think kind of sit down and think actually what is this doing for me what is the impact it's having on my life is it making it better is it making it worse um and at first like yes look at the facts like look at those concrete facts and actually see um but I think yeah it's, it's challenging and actually, interesting, I was speaking um, about this recently. Um, I do an eating disorder group um, at the moment through lockdown. And we were talking um, last week about uh, motivations, wanting to get well. And one of my big motivations was that I wanted to go traveling. Um, and I love exploring the world. I love, yeah, I just love going away, which is probably something else that I've massively struggled with in lockdown is just not being able to travel freely. Um, mm. But for me, I had to realize that the eating disorder was stopping me doing that. But for others, they might think that actually the eating disorder isn't stopping them doing that, that they can still go out and have a really good time. Um, and I totally get that. But I also think that sometimes when you're writing these letters, it helps you to see that actually there is so much more to life than the eating disorder. That yes, you might feel like the eating disorder is giving you so much. But at the same time, it's just reminding yourself with letters like this and with exercises like this that actually what it's giving you is nothing. I suppose when you've got the rest of the world around you telling you it's wrong as well, it must be difficult to not want to align yourself with it even further, particularly when, you know, as you've as you've touched on that the sense of control it gives you back in periods that we feel a loss of control or we feel overwhelmed by what we're going through and it rids us you know as you say it rid it rid you of emotions you're really difficult complex emotions when we've got a, a a relationship with a set of coping mechanisms that are distilling our existence down to black and white you know on or off and and, and not really dealing with all these different shades of gray that are quite challenging and the rest of the world saying you must eat you must stop exercising you must all of a sudden you know th there's that there's that reason why it becomes such an attractive relationship to continue but I think what a wonderful intervention to sit down and to write both of these letters and almost to see how it changes over the period as as we begin to adjust and embrace new coping mechanisms healthier coping mechanisms to manage these uh these, these periods of crisis and distress I hope the uh, I wanted to ask about emotions you know as we said that you know through both periods uh you know in your early years at sort of 12 13 when it first presented and then uh, a difficult period when your grandma passed away real difficult complex emotions during that time um do you think we as a, as a society have a I don't want to be too leading with the question where do you think we sit with emotions are we are we good at embracing emotions culturally are we poor at embracing emotions what sort of relationship do you think we have our, with our emotional self I think we're getting better as a society but I still think there's such a long way to go um I think there's still issues around both men and women talking about how they're actually feeling and being honest with people. Um, and I see this a lot actually when I go into schools, the amount of young people who are really struggling with their mental health, but cannot tell someone how they're feeling and 
cannot talk about it because they don't want to be a burden to someone else and it just feels so much easier to just feel fine all the time I think what we have done is we've started that process of normalizing conversations but but I think sometimes we need to take a bit of a step back and actually kind of like I guess address how far we've actually come so for example I know that men really struggle to talk about things and we talk about that a lot um, which is amazing and it's so important that we're talking about it but at the same time I think sometimes we forget that actually women really struggle as well and a lot of women I know will struggle with their mental health I know that I still have bad days and actually sometimes on my bad days I find it hard to talk about it despite the fact that I campaign on this and I try and do what I can to break the stigma around mental health because people still look on and would view me as a strong person as someone who would just keep going however difficult life feels and I feel I guess I feel lucky that people think that about me but sometimes I think that adds another layer of pressure to it and makes it a little bit harder as well um yeah so I think it's yeah I think it's a bit of both I think it's a good thing that we've started progressing but there is still such a long way to go um and I think it'd be interesting to kind of work out with individuals actually what it is that stops them talking about things so I know for me it was like it just feels easier sometimes to say you're fine um sometimes you feel like a burden sometimes you feel guilty for sharing or sometimes it is just really scary to be that vulnerable but I know from personal experience like the more vulnerable we are with people and the more we build up our support network around us actually the easier the easier it gets to actually then keep having those conversations and keep talking yeah I I couldn't agree more with that I think that you know there is that balance between or that recognition and that kindness that we need to offer ourselves that there are times when we feel um strong enough to talk and share um but equally it's important to have that support network around us as you say so the right people the people that are adding value to our existence and then other times we you know we're we it's almost as if we're wading through treacle that it is difficult that actually we just need a little bit of time to allow these emotions to percolate um and and work their way through to understand where we're truly at i've said it before you know there's 499 words in the english language that represent an emotion uh, and I still think it's not enough. And of that 499, we're only using probably a couple of dozen. We tend to clump stuff together. And so the felt sense in relation to our spoken vocabulary and where we, where, what, what we have at our disposal, I think is still, still way off. And, and I think it is important sometimes. And I urge everyone, and hence why I think I'm so taken by the letters and, and what you've done all those years ago or was encouraged to do, um, because it looked at both sides. It actually looked at the whole self. It saw where you was at and what it was providing and what it was doing. And that enabled you to sort of sit with some, some really important emotion without falling into that reactive state, which often sadly is is what we rely on so heavily if we've got something that we feel is working we're going to keep doing it because it's the easier option but sometimes mm. choosing the not so easy option is really important for our period of growth and and that goes back to what you said in you know in periods of relapse or setbacks there's so much that we can take and so much that we can learn from it and um and, and you know in again just to just to sort of uh, give a nod to something else you said with regards to um anorexia and you can't be anorexic one month and one month not as it were um and i suppose that goes as far as saying anorexia doesn't necessarily define or let's say eating disorders generally it doesn't define the individual would that be fair to say yeah a hundred percent it doesn't and 
I think that's the thing quite often when you have an eating disorder, like it, it becomes your whole life and your whole identity. And so when you start recovery, you have to go and find your new identity. But also when people look at you, that's what they see. And actually, it's been really interesting for me because I, um, growing up, obviously, like when I went into hospital, like it became a massive part of my identity, the fact that I had an eating disorder. And when I went home, it was always quite challenging, like, because my family would kind of be watching everything I was doing and eating. Um, and yeah, and I think sometimes it feels harder then to be honest with people around you. And again, this is something that I was talking recently about um, uh, to other people who have eating disorders. Actually, that whole thing that quite often we think that people will only realise something's the matter with us if we start to go back to our old patterns of behaviour. And so it's so important that we can shift that identity mindset and actually find other coping mechanisms and find the power of actually talking about things. Um, but I think as well, like just going back, I guess, to something else you said a minute ago, um, I know I'm not the host, but I'm going to do this anyway, um, was um, that whole thing around like like finding, yeah, like finding people to talk to. And I, I completely agree with you. Like sometimes actually I think it's okay to sit with those feelings and those emotions and to not share them with anyone and to work out like how you're feeling, like checking in with yourself. And I think for me in that sense, I feel I feel very lucky because I've had so much therapy um, that I know my brain extremely well, although my therapist would probably hate me saying that. <laughs> um, I feel like I do. And so I know that on days when maybe things are really difficult, actually sometimes I don't need to tell anyone because I know that I can get through that day and the next day will be better. And for me, it's actually like sometimes taking a bit of a step back and being like, actually, if I feel this bad for five days in a row, that is when I need to tell someone. That is when I need to talk to someone. And for each of us, it's about yeah, working out when we need that support and what additional support we might need when that happens. Well, you're a very strong individual. I always have a measure of three to four days. If something's rumbling on for three or four days, then we have to reach out. You're, you're hardcore and you can push on till five. Um, but no, I, I couldn't agree more. You know what? I think... We all have to, it's for us to manage and to, um, to occupy this space, this, this broken old world in which we live in. I'm, I'm a firm believer that it's never the individual that's broken. It's always the outside world. And it's how we prevent too much of the outside world infecting our, uh, or corrupting our internal landscape, our internal space. We have the capabilities, the tools, uh, the necessary interventions as it were to, to manage this crisis but sometimes because from an emotional perspective it's the great unseen um, we're not always the best at triaging that volume of information that can come in and cause the disruption and more often than not and as I say we've, we've named some or we've repeated a few really difficult emotions and one that obviously stands out is guilt and it's it's such a complex emotion and one that the the you know we're we're riddled with and, and it causes such such um distortions in our behaviors as well and we 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 do struggle to kind of to process it particularly if you look at the sort of definition of, of guilt there's, there's two reasons it presents um it's if we've done something that we shouldn't have or we haven't done something that somebody's asked of us and quite often we we are left with this sense of guilt because it's the closest emotion to this felt sense what we feel and because it can't be processed because it's not always the fairest emotion to to apply to a situation it leaves us in this sort of state of flux or this state of overwhelmed sense of loss of control and and being able to a complicated mess as as we touched on earlier and and so i think sometimes we can then see particularly in 
very, very difficult circumstances, our coping mechanisms kick in to manage that situation. And and I think everything you've you've sort of alluded to, understanding root calls, understanding self is important for all of us. And as you say, sitting at five days, if we're still rumbling on, then we're reaching out to our support network, knowing that we may just need to chew something over. We may just need something reflected back because it might be a blind spot that we're we're not quite hitting. Yeah, I agree with that definitely. And I think yeah, it's working yeah, it's working out individual needs sometimes, isn't it? And I think that's why for me it's so important to have if you need it, have that extra support to go back to those root issues where something might have been triggered and caused you to cope in a certain way. Mm. I think if we can understand ourselves and we can tune into that internal dialogue, we're giving ourselves the best chance to regulate our response to situations. And, uh, you know, we, we are imperfect creatures. That's the beauty of being a human being. And it's never about, um, you know, really sort of damning our behaviours. And, you know, we're, the, the inevitability is we'll often make mistakes. But actually, as you said before, relapses, setbacks, these are these are learning opportunities as well these can be markers or red flags to say actually something's not quite right or i'm missing it or i'm running too quickly and actually ah right here's my body's way of saying something's awry something's amiss here um and i think in that actually so just quickly like i think sometimes it's like taking sometimes you have to take a bit of responsibility yourself and take a little bit of ownership of that and i know for me um there's been points along my kind of recovery journey where I have found something really overwhelming. And instead of taking that step back, that step back to think about it and think about how I'm going to respond, I will have responded in a way that I then look back on and I kind of regret. So it might have been shouting at someone or getting frustrated at someone. Um, And even over the last couple of years, like actually doing that as well at times. And I think for me, like what I have learned over the last six months is like, sometimes it is about yeah kind of like on say like you're on social media or whatever and you go and write a tweet and you're really like opinionated you might be getting really angry or annoyed and sometimes for me it's like actually imagining my response actually yes I'm going to write it out like a tweet like that and then stopping saving it in my drafts folder waiting six hours and then going back and seeing if I want to do it and in real life drafting what you want to say in your head then waiting, kind of counting to, I don't know, 20, 30 in your head, and then deciding if you still want to say that. Because I think in our current society, the way that things are so fast paced, it means that quite often we can just respond without really thinking. And as individuals, when you struggle with your mental health, and actually, I think everyone should be doing this, particularly if you're struggling with your mental health, actually, sometimes taking that step back and being like, actually, do I want to respond in that way? Or do I want to find another way to respond? Um, And I think as well, like, the other thing that I just wanted to flag within that and with talking, I guess more talking about things, is going back to what we were saying a moment ago about just feeling heard. And I think, again, it is that whole thing, like, actually, some people, I guess this is more a reminder, some people won't ever listen properly. And you might feel like then you're not being heard. But in that, it's about finding people around you that actually, you do feel heard when you talk to and you do feel like you're being taken seriously and you're being listened to. Yeah, you know, that's it. Finding your people, isn't it? It's it's for, from a clinical perspective. I'm a ma- anyone that I see, anyone that comes into the hospital, anyone that comes into the clinic uh, after the assessment, I'll always say the same thing. You know, look, no no psychologist, counselor, therapist, psychiatrist, anyone in the helping profession should really 
you, you should well i mean this is this is my own personal view you shouldn't be pinning the patient down the individual down to to a follow-up appointment it's up to the individual whether they felt comfortable you know it, it un, relationship underpins our existence and in in this working relationship when when somebody is in crisis it's crucial that they feel comfortable and you know I'm, yeah i'm 100 percent behind that it's finding our people and actually you know what in some instances it you know it's not about having one individual for some periods of difficulty or discomfort someone else may be more useful and that transient process is uh is 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 beyond important it's of paramount importance really and um yeah i think that well said very well said um hope we must get to your next song choice um so let's go into your se- uh, second and final song choice of the show um Stay with us here on the Happiness Algorithm. Uh, I am joined by Hope Virgo. Uh, this is a second song choice. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough.
heaven now I'm laying it at your feet You'll have every failure God You'll have every victory Phoenix FM. Welcome back to the Happiness Algorithm with me, James Roast. I'm joined by the amazing Hope Virgo, and that was her second song choice. That was Lauren Daigle, You Say. Um, Hope, I said to you off air, actually. I'd not heard that song before. What an amazing, amazing track. Beautiful lyrics to it. Mm, Yeah, I really love it, actually. I was going through... um a bit of a hard time um, about a year and a half ago and started listening to it. And it was one of those songs um, on my Spotify, I've got various playlists um, and one of them is a feel good playlist. Um, and it's on my feel good playlist. So when maybe I'm having a bit of a down day in the morning, I tend to put on music from that. And it's, that's one of the songs, yeah, that I'm, I definitely last, yeah, last time I probably had it on constantly 24 <laughs> seven. Well, you know what? A, a feel-good playlist, uh, everyone should have a feel-good playlist. I, I spoke to Johnny Benjamin several weeks ago, and he he was a huge advocate for a feel-good playlist. And John Salmon was on the other week, and he said the same thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I urge everyone to have a feel-good playlist. It, it's um, I've, uh, for, for the listeners tuning now, I, I put together a playlist of... Um, on Spotify of all the guests in season one and all the song choices that they've, uh, that they chose, uh, into an album or a playlist on Spotify as well. And often if I'm out running or anything that I'll put that on and it's just a lovely sort of journey. It takes me on and the conversations I've had as well. And, you know, as we touched on earlier, your first song choice, uh, with pink and Kenny Chesney, it takes you back to Mallorca and yeah, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So, Hope, we are sadly into the final part of the show, the final 10 minutes of the show, which, uh, you know, we really could go on and on and on uh, and talk about so much more. You've been a fantastic guest, but I think it's really important for those listening to this, um, how they can um, follow what you're doing, how they can get behind the Dump the Scales campaign and be kept up to uh, speed on on your talks in schools and corporate um presentations etc so please share your social media handles and websites and points of contact amazing thank you um so yeah dump the scales can be found um on change.org so if you 
go on change.org and just type in jump the scales at the top, it should come up. Um, and if that fails, just Google dump the scales and my name, um, and then it will definitely come up. Um, and uh, my Instagram is just at hopevirgo underscore. Um, and then I'm on Twitter as just hopevirgo. Um, and then my website is hopevirgo.com. So yeah, like if anything has come up for anyone today, and there's anything that you want to ask me directly, um, or even any just thoughts and any of the stuff that we've shared, particularly around recovery, um, I'm more than happy, yeah, for you to get in touch with me. Um, and yeah, it'd be great. I guess, yeah, I guess my thing with recovery, actually, this whole topic of recovery, is I always love hearing what recovery means to different people and what you're doing to actually support yourself moving further forward in your recovery. So do, yeah, kind of message us to tell us. We'd love to hear. And I know that you are. Um and just to sort of echo what you've said there you are very supportive you're very open and, and active on the social medias as well and and I would say that you know that your story and what you've been through uh will resonate with so many so many people I'm, I'm sure um and I do urge anybody to reach out and uh and and just you know just to sort of feel secure um in in where they're at at this moment in time so before we close, we must sort of build upon and share some of the other uh, words of wisdom or what you've learned um, through your journeys and, and the road that you've traveled. And we've looked at, you know what, it is about the bespoke aspect of recovery. So it's finding who we are and finding what works for us. You've mentioned for you what's important is, well, we've just said the feel good playlist, but equally you've touched on it a few times, journaling. That's a really important part for you. And obviously it formed a big part of your book as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I I, I live by journaling. Um, I absolutely love it. Um, so I tend to journal yeah, pretty much all the time, actually. So I journal after I've done a talk quite often if I had a difficult conversation with someone. Um, and then I also I've got a book um, by my bed where every single evening I write one positive of the day. Um, it's like a line a day book for the next five years. And for me, I think the journaling really helps because it gives me a chance to reflect and to kind of offload onto paper about how I'm feeling. It also stops me ruminating. So going over things constantly in my head um and it's also yeah it's just also just a space to just process things and I think quite often like I'm one of those people who overthinks a lot um and if I don't journal I might have a tendency to overthink so much more so yeah for me it's been a really powerful tool and actually I listened um to something recently um by someone called Josh who talks a lot about his recovery um in being from being an alcoholic um and he said that actually he doesn't like journaling, but what he does instead is he voice notes. So his form of journaling is a voice note, which I just thought was such a good, yeah, such like a fantastic way to actually do it because some people I know are quite afraid of writing or they're worried about getting stuff down on paper. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's a very nerdy fact, but quite an important one. And I'm hoping I'm getting this right. But um, when we, so when we're communicating, when we're having this conversation now, the speaker generally speaks you know, speaks at a rate of knots of uh, anywhere between 60 and 100 words per minute. But the listener, so when we're in a two-way conversation, we're actually processing um, words or vocabulary at around about 600 to 800 words a minute. Now, if we look at, you know, you touched on there, when we're ruminating or we're laying in bed or we're, we're, we're on our own, the conversation that we're having 
internally inside our head is 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 happening or processing at 600 to 800 words a minute so it wouldn't take long for us to end up down a path that we don't particularly want to go down so I think the externalization of that, so committing it to paper or, you know, a line a day, I love the idea of that, um, or Josh um, recording it on, you know, we've all got our phones available, we've also all got voice memo apps and so on and so forth, and just getting it out there, I think then slows that process down, and as you quite rightly say, it, it enables us to process it at a rate of knots that is going to be much kinder to us than just keeping it internally and rattling around on our own. Um, yeah, well, there we go. So journaling, uh, one positive thought a day. Um, we've got positive or happy playlists following you and tracking what you're doing on social media and, uh, and on the websites. And obviously if, and, and oh, we mustn't forget building a, uh, a social network or building a support network that is going to add the value yeah. that we deserve and, and possibly need, um, therapy, if we can gain access to it. Any other sort of pointers or direction that those who are struggling can can access or, or what you would recommend? Um, so my one final bit, which I think was really helped me actually, is <clears throat> on really bad days, I have a list of 20 things to do. Um, 20 might seem a little bit extreme for some people. Um, but for me, it's things like getting on those days when I just get up and I just don't want to get out of bed and I feel really awful. It's like one of them's like wash my hair. Then I've got another one, which is like get dressed, um, make a cup of tea, lie on the sofa, um, have a cup of tea sitting in the sunshine, like things like that. And actually for me, having a list of things to do on those really hard days just helps me to get up and actually start the day. Um, So definitely recommend thinking about that and actually thinking about what you're doing on those really difficult days. Because I know some days life feels so impossible and emotionally and physically completely exhausting that you don't think that you can do anything and if that's that that's totally fine but something that's really helped me is actually just realizing that actually there are a few things that I can do which then tend to lift my mood but also help me to not feel quite as guilty around the fact that I might be struggling a bit oh I like that I like that a lot a can-do list a can-do yeah. list. Uh, you know what? It's what you said there. When we, we, we all get into those funks where, you know, we just feel, as you say, you, you know, a failure or overwhelmed by, by the day itself, life itself. For often, you know, quite, I, I say to people sometimes, um, you know, the, 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 the problem, if you like, is, is life itself sometimes. And I think when you can break it down to those incremental pieces, you know, as you say, yours, you've got a 20 can-do list whatever it may be if we can tick those off and be fair with them as well don't don't overcomplicate it or overstretch or overcook yourself but when we can achieve those as you say it delivers that sense of mastery that that little burst of achievement and we're just maintaining movement putting one foot in front of the other um hope what an absolute pleasure it has been to have you on today's show um Well, I'm going to put it out there. I'd love to have you back on the happiness algorithm because I think there's so much more that we could talk about. And I'm sure the listeners will have got so much from today and will be wanting so much more from you. So um, hopefully we'll do this again in the future. Um, I will, before we close the show, I always hand over to uh, our our judge, Mr. Um, Tom Hanks himself. Uh, So uh, Mr. Hanks, how did today's show go? 
I'd say that was a pretty successful broadcast. You cheeky beggar, you always tell me it's been uh, an excellent show. Uh, I've been James Rose. This has been the Happiness Algorithm. My special guest today has been Hope Virgo. Um, have a wonderful week. We'll be back next week with uh, another great guest, uh, more great music. Uh, be safe, be healthy, and be happy. Phoenix FM.